Welcome back to the Flush'em and Dust'em podcast. Tyler here and my right-hand man, the champ, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) Shit. If you guys listened to the last podcast, you know why he's a champ. So that's going to be his new nickname moving forward. But uh, (laughs) we got a... I did, not tell him to, I did not tell him to say that shit. <laughs> I just thought it was funny. He's wearing a gray sweatshirt like Rocky. You know? It says Pheasants there it is. Forever. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Speaking of Pheasants Forever, we have Jared Wickland. He is the public relations manager with Pheasants Forever. Uh, we're excited to have him on. Uh, him and uh guy he works with, Casey, reached out to us. And uh, so we're going to talk about uh, Pheasants Forever in general, uh, Pheasant Fest coming up that hopefully a bunch of you are going to be attending, just a bunch of other topics tonight. But uh, first off, we'll just have Jared introduce himself and give us some history, and we'll uh, go from there. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, uh, no, thanks um, for coming. Jared Wickland, uh, live up in the great state of Minnesota. Uh, I guess people can argue that point. <laughs> a lot of our, a lot of our friends in Iowa do, so it's all right. But uh, public relations manager for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever nationally. Um, kind of got my, got my start, uh, my roots in Iowa. I, I started working full time for Pheasants Forever as a regional rep in Iowa back in 2009, 2010. Um, in that role, I basically did customer service for 52 chapters in Southern Iowa, uh, including, I think a couple that you guys are pretty familiar with, uh, in the, in the Des Moines area and even over in Cedar Rapids. And, uh, from there, um, my wife and I had our first child after six years on the job and said, Hey, we'd, we'd like to try to get back to our, our Minnesota roots and came back to a public relations position in 2014, I believe it was. And I've been here ever since and feel very fortunate and blessed to work for an organization. That's, that's sort of my passion. Yeah, man. Very, very cool. Not often everybody can say that they're doing what they're, they're passionate about. So that's as Tyler, he's doing his passion right now too, I think. Like this, or are you talking about my normal day job? Your normal day job. Uh, if, I, if my boss finds this podcast, I'll be fired. <laughs> no, so, uh, so yeah, you're probably super, super busy right now with um, Pheasant Fest coming up and getting all that stuff lined up. And how does your role kind of play into that? And what can we be expecting? Uh, for the weekend of festivals. Yeah, you know, it's a, it is a busy time um, by the, you know, I like to try to take time off to bird hunt around the holidays and those types of things. But after January rolls around, I try to get one more trip to South Dakota, which I didn't fit in this year, unfortunately. Um, I actually went, I went ice fishing instead, um, which turned out okay. But uh, my role at Pheasant Fest is kind of multifaceted. Um, I'm helping run some of the stage this year. And we'll talk about the main stage here in a little bit and some of the cool topics that we have going on there but um a lot of it is just promotion of the show itself so i handle basically all the advertising for pheasant fest and quail classic which is big i mean it's tv stations and newspapers and radio um digital digital streaming on things to put it in front of people uh you know geofencing if people are familiar with that um of different different areas in the twin cities and you know like the the fleet farms and the shields and the wild games and people that we know are our people right people that enjoy the outdoors yep. um so i do a lot of that and i do a lot of this too uh, a lot of a lot of podcasting a lot of interviews and uh i also 
you know, get to answer some of the, some of the tough questions that come through like, Hey, um, you know, I'm, it's been a tough winter so far and I'm, I'm looking for, I'm looking for feed to put out for the birds. Is that something, you know, pheasants forever offers and, uh, deal with a lot of questions like that, um, all the time, all the time. So. What's one of the craziest questions that anybody's asked you? Ooh, kind of put me on the spot there, Tyler. Um, <laughs> boy, I don't, I've gotten. Or one of the dumbest questions, I guess. I've gotten. There's no such thing as a dumb question. Oh, well, there <laughs> actually is. Honestly, honestly, the, the way, the way I work my job is I sort of live by that, right? Like everybody deserves an answer to a question. I had a, I had a lady, I think it was on the East coast. Um, and I believe it was a Stockburg cause it was basically just, it was almost like up, up on her, up on her porch. I, I think it came from a dog trainer or something, but she asked, Hey, reaching out to pheasants forever. I've got a problem. There's a, there's a roost, there's a rooster pheasant walking around on my porch. I can't tell if he's injured or needs help. And, um, where, where can, uh, is there a rehabilitation center I can bring him to? And I'm like, yeah, the out the outdoors that'll that'll rehabilitate them. Uh, but that, I get interesting questions like that all the time. Most of them are pretty straightforward, though. It has you know membership, hunting, habitat. How can I get involved with pheasants forever, quail forever? Um, sort of sort of those types of things. Uh, a lot of a lot of hunter oriented questions, I would say. No, that's that's good, and you mentioned the. The big stage at Pheasant Fest. What is, what is the big stage, and what, what are they going to have on it this year? Oh, there's a number of different things. Um, for the for the main stage is sort of a, the main stage is sort of a new stage that we have this year. Um, you know, people that are familiar with Pheasant Fest that come every year. Um, you know, Bird Dog Stage is obviously a huge draw for people. Um, our Public Lands Pavilion. This will be the third year we have it. Basically, sort of celebrating the over 800 million acres that we have uh, in public lands in this country, and then topics surrounding those. So one of them this year is corner crossing, right? Like out in out in places like Wyoming and elsewhere. But for the main stage this year, uh, I think one of the cool topics that we have is I'm going to be leading a, a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service panel forum uh with some leaders in this region from the u.s fish and wildlife service and do you do you guys hunt do you guys hunt waterfall production areas at all yeah yes. yeah well. yep. so one of the many questions that i get throughout the year is related to you know our work on waterfall production areas um you know what are you guys doing are you helping manage those uh obviously we acquire land and then you know land that's maybe next to a waterfall production area and we we uh, donate it as an addition to that area. Um, so it also becomes a waterfall production area, but they, you get a lot of questions around haying and grazing, uh, tree management. Why aren't there food plots on those types of things? Um, some of those questions. And then also, um, there's a program that we help run, uh, through it's called the partners for fish and wildlife program with the U S fish and wildlife service. It's meant basically for landowners. I think there's probably a lot less people that know about it though. And if you're a private landowner, it's a, it's a great program to get into, to establish pheasant habitat, duck habitat, whatever it might be. 
It's like, is that like IHAP in Iowa? Are you familiar with that? Uh, I was having to, uh, it's not, not necessarily walk-in access. This one's for, this one's for okay. private landowners, but we work on both okay. the private side and the public side with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service with the waterfall production areas. So going to be leading a panel and I think we're going to be putting out a, uh, putting out a call for people to submit questions that like a lot of you hunt waterfall production areas. Like what are some of the big questions you have, whether it could be management or um, just what are they? I mean, they're, they're designed for duck production and pheasants are a byproduct of that on the grasslands around the outside. So I think it'll be a fun, uh, and damn cat tails, yeah. man. <laughs> I think it'll be a fun discussion. Um, I'm hopefully there'll be a little lively debate there too, but we've got some experts on hand. Some of the managers for these huge areas where, uh, waterfall production areas live. And, um, I, I think it's going to be a, a fun, uh, a fun panel for people to be a part of. And do, nice. does your normal ticket that you buy, does that give you access to that discussion? Or I know yeah. like sometimes they have extra tickets that you have to buy to be a part of certain yeah, things. The, the only extra ticket that you really need to buy for Pheasant Fest. So the standard like general admission of the show floor, and that covers all the different stages and things that we have there is, is $15. I'll give you guys a code at the end. If anybody's interested, that's listening and, w- and wants to, wants to attend, we can, we can hook you up with a few tickets. It's no problem. Um, but you know, we've got an, an Upland rally banquet on Friday night and the big national pheasant fest and quail classic banquet on Saturday night. Obviously there's, you know, food costs and other things involved with that and membership. So those are about the only things there that, you know, require, um, a, a, another pay for ticket, I guess. Uh, are you, are you doing anything or a part of, uh, I've seen a lot of discussion around the first aid part for the dog floor. Um, and are you, have you been a part of any of that discussions to give us an idea of, um, what that's going to entail? Yeah. Yep. Um, a a little bit. I'm not. I'm not uh, running that session myself, but I think you're talking about the okay. the canine trauma session that we're running, correct? Yes. Yep. yep. So that's that's designed um, for $500. You get a life. It's. I know it looks like an expensive uh, expensive deal, right? Um, but it com- comes yeah. with a lot of cool stuff that uh, with it. So it's a couple hour course, um, and it's designed. Uh, David Gutierrez is one of our regional reps down in um, the Southwest United States. He used to be a green beret. Awesome guy. Um, he's been everywhere, done, done a lot of cool things. Uh, he was in the green berets for a long time, huge bird hunter. Um, but he knows the guys that run sort of their canine tactical unit. Um, and they have to, they have to be ready to go, uh, for trauma for their dogs in case something happens in the field. So he's, he's bringing in some of those partners and they're just going to give a full breakdown or suite of, of, of different, um, different types of trauma that can happen in the field and how to deal with that. So for $500, you get a dog life membership for your dog, which is pretty cool. Um, you also get this three hour training. What's a, sorry, go ahead. What's the dog life? What's the dog life membership? Uh, uh, yeah. Dog life membership. It includes, uh, includes a sport dog training collar. Um, and it also is, I think it includes a, a regular dog collar, if I'm not mistaken from Orvis as well. Um, and then on top of that, you get a free trauma training kit that comes with this class that you're taking. And then basically all the, all the knowledge to handle things in the field, should they arise. Um, and anybody that has a bird dog knows there's, 
anything from getting poked with a stick really bad to running into a barbed wire fence to, uh, you know, fights with fights with raccoons or whatever it might be. Um, there's yep. some really bad things that can happen in the field. And this uh, this particular seminar is built. I will mention any names. Probably need that. Need a human kit, too, for some of our buddies that we <laughs> have with. They shoot each other. <laughs> so I, I think it's a cool it's a pretty cool training. Uh, I believe we have about 45 people signed up for it at this point in time. Um, I think there's a few spots left. Um, but, yeah, it's been a pretty it's been a pretty popular deal so far. So when you're when you're going through, you know, I guess building out or planning for pheasants, pheasant fest, what, you know, are you looking for new and improved things out there? What, like, where do you start? Um, honestly, we, we talk it over. A lot of us are, uh, involved online. Right. And you see, yep. And I know a lot of the same things are there, but I didn't know if you yeah. like, you're always trying to expand and what you're finding. We do. People are, People, are people reaching out to you all the time? Hey, we got this, or I guess, how do you come across? Um, they stuff? reach out to us once in a while. A lot of it is through, I think you guys are on some of the same Facebook pages. I am the pheasant hunting junkies and the wild bird hunters. And you see things that come up there and I take notes once in a while. We do get people that come up and say, Hey, we'd like to, we'd like to see this at national pheasant fest and quail classic this year. Um, the public lands pavilion that celebrates our public lands and it's all public land topics. Um, you know, a lot of the, that came up just a few years ago. Um, and sort of the, the idea behind that was that the vendors in that particular area, anything that they sell, um, 10% of their net proceeds come back and then it's matched by partners to put towards a public land acquisition. So we've kept up with that, you know, that particular one, we, we helped purchase, uh, almost a thousand acre, land acquisition in Minnesota that was in the crossover between the pheasant and prairie chicken range, which is pretty cool. Um, nice. this was that purchased this year. Uh, that was last year. Yep. Last nice. year. That'd be it's called the Cupido WMA. It's a huge, huge property and Cupido, um, it stands for, for prairie chicken. Um, nice. this year, w one cool one that I think I'd like to point out that other, different people brought to us. Um, and we reached out to one guy that we know can really deliver here is, um, on the bird dog stage, it's all 30 minute formats this year. It used to be an hour. So we kind of necked it down to 30 minutes at a time. And this particular one is on bird dogs and traps. Um, I'm not sure if you guys have ever been out in the field and, you know, dogs ever been caught in a snare. You hear the stories about dogs caught in conibears. bears. Um, those types of things. I had a buddy whose dog got caught in a snare and he thought he was going to lose him. And I, uh, he ended up <clears throat> taking a knife and like kind of stabbing his dog from how he was telling the story to get under the yep. snare. Yep. And then he was able to twist it and break it, but he said he thought he was gonna, his dog was going to die. Yeah. So it's those, yeah. it's those types of things that we like to try to avoid. Um, so one of the people that were bringing this here, his name is uh, Jerry Snetsinger. They call him the trap doctor. You guys ever heard of him before? I haven't. Based not. in Minnesota. Um, I'll just read a little bit about him. Um, his love of upland hunting, trapping, and bird dogs dates to his roots along the Mississippi River in 1950. And uh, he's part of the White Earth Tribe. He's a life member of the Rough Grouse Society and the North American Trappers Association. And he dedicates a lot of his time to helping upland hunters and trappers find common ground on public lands. Um, so he's going to talk a little bit about public lands and how trappers and bird hunters, um, that's a place for everybody, the whole outdoor community to come together. Um, and he's going to go over all sorts of different types of traps. So, um, 
body gripping traps, so conibears, bears, footholds, uh, so that'd be underspring traps, long spring, coil spring, uh, enclosed traps, uh, snares. He's going to talk about the best tools for trap disengagement. Um, maybe some resources for becoming a future trapper if people are interested in that, but really, really kind of connect the pieces, how we all, you know, live and work in the, in the same area here and, and that we all need to get along yep. on public lands and um, trappers have a right to be there as well. And having that knowledge of how to get your dog out of a trap and the right tools to carry with you in the field. You know, a lot of people think uh, a, a Leatherman's not going to cut it for a lot of those different, different traps or snares. I, 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 I bought a uh, actual wire yep. cutters. Yep. He's yeah. got, uh, he's also going to have a table, uh, outside of the dog. Hopefully area. I'm on the right, hopefully I'm on the right, the right path. You are, that, you are. Other yep. tools. Cause I mean, a lot of those <laughs> new traps and things, when I interviewed them just a few days ago, um, talked about how it's made of like, like basically airplane cable. You just can't, you can't cut it, oh, cut Jesus. it with a Leatherman or something small like that. So, um, he's going to have a number of different tools there. And if you stop by his booth, um, he's also going to have, um, some dog, dog, um, I think he calls them snare kits or dog. Uh, I forget what he calls them, but huge. Uh, what are they? He's going to have complimentary nylon zip ties, dog release kits for attendees while supplies last and show you like if you ever get into a wetland situation where a lot of the kind of bear traps are set. So body gripping, um, he's going to show you how to how to release a dog out of one of those. I think it's pretty cool seminar and I plan on it being packed with people because it's a it's a hot topic, yeah. right? Yeah, that sounds really good. I can see and that. Yeah. What day is that? All, more than one day? Yeah, or? that's on. Uh, he's on Friday, uh, Friday and Saturday, I believe, at one and two thirty. Okay. Yep. Nice. And does he have? Do you know if he has Instagram? I was just kind of looking. At um, Jerry Snetzinger. I don't believe he does. Uh, he does. He does okay. do. Uh, I believe if you go look on YouTube under the Trap Doctor, um, he does have some YouTube okay. videos on there that are that are pretty well done. I'm scared to Google the trap doctor. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it's going to come up with. Yeah, let's, let's keep it PG. Yeah. <laughs> the parental guidance on there. <clears throat> what does uh, what attendees? Uh, what's the attendance like at uh, Pheasants Forever? Is it getting stronger? Uh, do you see a trend of anything? Uh, yeah, actually, going? it's it's been really good lately. We're actually sort of still climbing out from from the pandemic times. Honestly, when you cancel over 500 banquets, that really puts a puts a wrinkle in your membership number. And trying to get and there's been hesitation, right? People coming back to banquets. I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. But um, I believe we just surpassed uh, the 135 mark, which is where we were in 2020. Um, I mean, Pheasant Fest, honestly, in 2020 was the last was the last time we were like together with anybody. And it was only a few weeks after that in March that, you know, yep. things sort of sort of went awry. So but our chapters have done a great job coming up uh, with drive through banquets and things that sort of stem the tide. But um, people are excited. You know, banquets are back and uh, it's it's been a good it's been a good year here um, at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever and, and the membership department. So which is awesome. Good. Yeah. Do you, uh, so you're part of, so what is your favorite part of Pheasant Fest out of all the stuff that's going to be happening this year? Honestly, for me, it's sort of like a, it's sort of an upland party, if you will. And 
I get to see people that I maybe only see once, once a year, if that, um, that's probably the biggest thing when you talk, I don't know if you want to call them influencers or other people, but you know, anything from podcasters to outdoor writers to, um, people like Carl Gunzer, who works for Perina, who's a big sponsor of ours. I've hunted with him in the past. Um, just, just wonderful people that care about the mission. And I would say that's probably one of the best parts, um, is just being able to, to mingle in that upland space. I, I guess what I tell people is like, it's sort of a way to extend your season without hunting. You know what I mean? You're coming in, you're coming into a community uh, of people that are very like-minded and all are very passionate about upland hunting, whether that's pheasants or quail, uh, prairie grouse, rough grouse, whatever it might be. So that, that's probably the best part about it. Yeah. Yeah, Last year was my first year going um and it was it was crazy just like you walk around and i mean we i think this is our first time we did the our last year was the first time that we were at the podcast or have had the podcast when we actually went and it was crazy the amount of people that just recognized like our voice from yep the podcast or recognize our face and stuff you know that we've never even met in person and they're like oh hey you know nice me it's like which is pretty cool that people are actually listening to us. I, Some, you know. I think the other aspect of Pheasant Fest that I would point to is like, um, if you're into upland gear, like all the newest stuff is there. Like last year they had a they had a oh, couple yeah. new vests at Pheasant Fest last year where. Um, you know, final rise and some of those came out with some new ones and they were stacked like six, seven people deep by invest. Like, Oh, it was packed the, in that yeah, the whole weekend. Um, which is, which is awesome. That's what we, that's what we like to see for our vendors. Um, can you think of any new products? If you can say that are going to be there that are maybe hitting the floor pretty heavy this year. Off the top of I would. Head. I know there's some. I can't. We had a, a very short call about some of our staff were out at, at Shot Show meeting with partners and stuff. Um, there are some new shotguns um, and some new upland opportunities coming on the gear side. Um, off nice. the top of my off the top of my head, I just can't. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that I don't know because yeah. I can't list them all out. But um, some of them were talked about on a on a call here not too long ago. Um, I'm always up for a new shotgun. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. Me too. I think, you know, the other side of it too is like, there's just a lot of good information besides like, besides the gear and meeting people. Um, we have some of the best dog trainers in the world on that bird's dog stage, which is cool. I mean, I would say six or eight of like some of the top trainers in the country that have a lot of yep. combined knowledge, which is awesome. If you're getting a new dog or you've got a, got an issue with a dog at home, obedience, training, whatever it might be. I think the people on that stage can really help sort it out, which is cool. Um, on the habitat side for landowners, you know, we've got professional biologists in, uh, just standing by in the habitat help room there. Like if you want to go plan out, like, Hey, I've got a 40 acres, and I want to make it a pheasant factory. I want to make it the best it can possibly be for producing pheasants or producing quail or deer, turkey, whatever it is. Uh, we've got biologists there that'll that'll work with you, send you home with a conservation pl- program or plan rather, and then hook you up with you know other biologists that are actually in your area that'll come out and meet with you on your property for free. Um, it's a pretty oh, yeah, pretty cool planning process. That's, pretty, that's awesome. That'd be a dream. Yeah. 
40 acres. Yep. And, but honestly, know. that's why we focus so much on public lands too. Cause I would say the majority of our members, um, you know, anywhere from zero, zero acres or point, you know, 0.01 oh, yeah. that their house sits on all the way up to, you know, Here. 10, 20, 40. Uh, the majority of them are just public land hunters. Like I think a lot of us are. So, um, yep. and that's yep. a big part of the show. Yeah. Focus a ton on that too. And what we're doing with all of our initiatives and we've purchased a lot of land in Iowa, especially this past couple of years and we'll continue to do so. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't, yep. I don't, I don't even honestly. So, uh, what's your big projects coming up? maybe land wise or, um, you know, after pheasant fest that's coming up for 2023 that, you know, we can be looking out for, uh, for the 2023, 24 season that can get people, you know, kind of amped up for helping out. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's probably a number of different things and I probably won't get too into the weeds on them just because, you know, land acquisitions and permanent habitat projects, if they yeah. get out ahead of time, um, they have a tendency to fall, fall apart, honestly. Um, but I would say Iowa is really a Mecca for us in, um, working on public land acquisition. We've got a couple different pieces that we celebrated this last year. There was a skunk river piece. That's probably, I don't know, probably halfway between where you guys live. Um, that was just over 400 acres. That was awesome. Uh, we just got done doing another piece, um, up in Marshall, Tama County, um, right on, right on the river. Um, that was unbelievable. And I know right now we've got four other pieces in the works just in the state of Iowa alone, just to make it more localized for you. Um, that have been, that have been nice. pretty cool. Um, and are going to be great upland hunting public areas for us. Um, on the quail side, you guys might've seen the Bob white Hills that we just did at the end of the year. It was our first public land acquisition east of the mississippi river in the quail range that was in south carolina that was nearly 800 acre project which was awesome oh wow, um, oh, wow. and that abuts a 2000 acre wildlife management area so that's where you're building like complexes right it's strategic um building more capacity for wildlife which is awesome um one of the things i would say maybe not on the permanent side but what we really need help with from from members coming up here is we're going to be doing a lot of advocacy work around the 2023 farm bill and i know like some people hear that and say well what what does that have to do with me well anybody who hunts any walk-in access properties whatsoever and i was i i have iowa habitat and access program is included in that um we're pushing hard for VPA hip funding and to get more funding um, so that we can open up more private lands to public hunters. Um, that's a, that's a really big deal in the next farm bill. Um, also the number of acres that enrolled in CRP it's gone down throughout the years. I think a lot of people remember back when the conservation reserve program was kind of at its modern day peak around 38 to 40 million acres in 2000, 2007, kind of going into 2008. And we had a lot of States that corresponded with really, really high upland bird numbers at that time. Um, since then the farm bills passed, it dropped it down, uh, almost cut it in half, uh, down to 20, 24 million acres. Um, and that's, that's a lot, that's a lot of grassland habitat. That's a lot of yeah, square miles of grassland habitat 
um, lost just uh, the swipe of a pen, you know. So we're going to be asking people through action alerts and other things like, hey, speak up to your legislators in your state and who represent you in Congress. It's going to be a really big deal here, the 2023 Farm Bill. Um, we got the Grasslands Act through last year, which was a big deal, the North American Grasslands Conservation Act. It got introduced in the Senate. Uh, we're having it's a new Congress now, so we're kind of having to start over. We're going to try to get that reintroduced again and try to push that uh, push that through as well. So um, I think on on those couple of things, those are those are big deals for bird hunters that might not seem like it on the surface. But when you start diving into it, um, that's a lot of habitat. Years, years down the road. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's going to pay yeah, off. We're talking, you know, anywhere from five yeah. to 15 year contracts. So which is big. <clears throat> Yeah, that is huge. How long does it take? You know, you're talking about the that South Carolina property and whatnot. How long does that take for you guys to get it built up um, to where you feel, you know, wildlife sustainable or that it, it's kind of managing itself a little bit? Um, I would say acquisitions in general. So we really look a lot of times we have conservation minded landowners that come to us and we've got lands that are already rolled in some type of federal or state program. And, and some of them sit pretty good. Um, other times there's landowners that come to us. There might be some degraded cropland or something on there. Um, it takes a little bit to do. I'll tell you this in general is that most of our land acquisition work, each property is probably anywhere from a year to three years in the making. I mean, it's not, it's not just something that happens overnight. Um, there's a yeah. huge process and appraisal process that it has to go through. Cause, um, you know, typically we abide by, we don't, we don't go, um, above the, the average appraisal price for, for that particular property. And that's for a number of different reasons, but we're looking for, we're looking for properties that work well for conservation. And that's typically properties that aren't, don't produce well, um, you know, for commodity crops and those types of things have wetlands on them, which, uh, some of those properties we bought in Iowa this last year were, were a really good example of that. But after we acquire properties, I would say it's a good 14 to 16 months, probably. Um, when we donate properties to the DNR, to the U S fish and wildlife service, to a County conservation board, we like to make sure that they're in the best uh, best spot possible as far as quality habitat goes. Um, and if we yeah. can do, if we can do that and, and keep doing that at the pace that we have been, um, good things are happening at the same time. There's a lot of grassland loss too. You know, um, there's different things in the world. You look at, um, the war in Ukraine and the amount of wheat production over there and feeding the world. Like there's different United States is target number one to come up with those, those acres, you know, and, and that takes grassland off the landscape. So we got to figure out innovative ways to help landowners find, find that niche for conservation on their properties. Yeah. That's gotta be, it's just gotta get tougher and tougher too with bigger farms or more people that would need to feed or that's probably the biggest, more cattle, more pigs, more, that's you probably know. the biggest one is more right. people. Um, we yeah. we can work really well um, with cattle cattle producers ranchers like that's yeah that's I mean that's just a uh, that's a domesticated buffalo is all that is um, yeah. you know we used to produce a lot of birds in that uh, in that region too back when we had those animals but um, yeah we we've uh, we found I know a lot of ranchers in South Dakota and other places that buku bird numbers buku wildlife numbers in general on their properties because they're managing for their farmer for wildlife you know Both. yep. Yep. Yeah, no, that's pretty awesome. Yep. How has uh, 
how has the winter being up in Minnesota treated treated you guys so far this year? And <laughs> how's it how's the forecast looking? I should say. <laughs> I think it's maybe a little bit too early to tell yet. I can tell you this is that um, most regions in Minnesota, South Dakota, North Dakota are way above their average amount of snow for this time of year. Um, yeah. It, well, shit, didn't North Dakota have like two feet or some yes. crap like that before in like December? Yeah. Or early December? That's probably the biggest thing. And I like to tell people a lot. And I actually learned this, uh, I think it was from Todd Bogan shoots of the Iowa DNR, is that a pheasant really. Uh, snow depth is one thing, but a pheasant really uh, counts the days of winter and the amount of time that they have to spend on a white background. And this year it's significant. Um, we've Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, um, maybe little parts of Northern Iowa. I know it melted off a bit, but we, we had snow way. I, I like to get to January 1st without having any snow. And then I feel pretty good about the rest of the winter. We did not have, we did not have that this year. If you guys hunted, no, hunted up North. I at think all. we had snow in November. Yeah. Didn't we? Yeah. We had a little bit here. Um, it, we had a blizzard here. Oh, back in December, early December, uh, early too. December. Um, but I mean, it usually we get a, you know, we'll get six, seven, eight inches and then it's 50 yep. degrees the next two melts weeks away. and it melts away. Yeah. So like this weekend we just got, it was small snowstorm down here, but this weekend it's supposed to be 40 degrees. So most of it will be gone. That'll and be we'll good. Have an inch, inch to two inches maybe on the ground of that. And that's places. awesome. Yep. So, so I think it's been a pretty mild winter as long as they didn't get buried under the snow. Um, during that yeah, I, I think it's localized, you know, um, in Minnesota and South Dakota, like some of my rancher buddies and farmer farming buddies I went to school with have said like, you know, that storm we got before Christmas, that was rain, sleet, ice, and then heavy, wet snow followed by cold temperatures and a four day blizzard afterwards Ugh. was like the four worst days of weather that they've seen in a long, long time. And I'm talking, we're stacking up, stacking up snow and we've had a couple other blizzards since then um you're talking 10 to 20 foot snow drifts um in ditches yeah. in shelter belts and sacking you know entire cattail sloughs and that's where i worry about them more N not very often are pheasants going to die from starvation they've got native food sources there's grain out there that they're gonna find it i mean that's just they're they're very yeah, yeah they're a hardy yeah. bird you know but when you sack all their habitat and then you've had five days in a row of, you know, below zero weather, like we've had uh, sort of in the upper, upper great plains here. Um, you wonder how, how those birds can survive. But I, I say that I looked outside this morning and you wouldn't think there's any room left in a cattail slough. And I watched them fly into my corn plot and they looked happy as can be. So I think it generally just depends if they have good thermal cover and a food source. They're going to be okay, but we have we have a lot of winter left to go yet. Um, we know we're going to get another yes, storm at some point. So, yeah, the worst is probably like when we get a big old ice storm, because yeah. it's it just covers food and they can't you know unless they can peck through it with their beaks or you know some of that. And nature. that's that's but, really where you get into trouble, especially like if you don't have good cover. Um, ice can kill a pheasant and quail population in Southern Iowa knows this very well. Ice can oh, yeah. get after them real quick. Um, it's bad. We, we had to have quite a few ice storms early on this year, but everybody I've talked to that the birds seem to come okay out of those first one or two ice storms, which is, which is good. So. 
Yeah, I mean, I I was just up in uh, by Spencer area. What was it? Last not last week, the week before, two weeks ago, and there was birds everywhere in the field. I probably saw two hundred yep. birds. Yep. Not in the same field, but I mean, just by drive, and I saw them. They were all over oh, the place. I, I I frequent Spencer quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to tell yeah, you exactly you, where, you, but <laughs> you Minnesotans coming down here and blue blue platers. Was that? <laughs> was that? Yeah, Is that you this year, the third weekend in uh, November up there? I saw some Minnesota plates. I should have flattened your tires. Yeah, we sh- we, <laughs> we shot all limits, too. <laughs> no, no. No wonder we didn't see any damn birds. We actually filmed a, we actually filmed a, um, a show for the flush this year um, in northern Iowa, and um, – we were we hunted a little bit a little bit of public, um, but we lined up some landowners that are big pheasants forever constituents, and we went and hunted with them and kind of told their wildlife story and um, just strong bird population. I think across the board in Iowa this year, whether you're hunting public or private, it was it was really good, really good. Yeah, no, I I thought the bird numbers were good too. We had we had pretty good success, and they were flighty as all get out, but man, it was. It was a tough year. I mean, the we saw a ton of birds, but yeah, it was, it was, it was one of our my tougher worst, years. Yeah, it was my worst year, uh, I would say, I've had in a long time in terms of the birds I shot. I saw a ton of birds. Yeah. I just didn't get opportunities. What? I've heard that from multiple yeah. people, and I'm wondering if it's just because it was so dry going in the fall. Everybody talked about how it was just so dry and so crackly when you're walking through it that getting close to some of those birds was, was tough. And um, I guess it may it, – makes sense if that's the case but i heard that across the board not just in iowa but minnesota south dakota like man the birds were flighty this year and i honestly i don't i don't know if there's rhyme or reason to it yeah i mean we we have a couple public or public private uh spots that are absolutely stocked of birds i mean they're just loaded um and i mean we what we shot seven off there and we probably saw 200 birds on that Mm -hmm. property yeah, we could couldn't not get, get close. close to, couldn't to get close to him. I um, when we were up with the flush in, in northern Iowa, um, there's a landowner that we've been working with for a long time. He's a seed dealer, um, but he's taken taken some of his more unproductive areas and putting it into habitat over the last you know 10, 15 years. And uh, he invited us down with the flush to to come kind of tell his story. And um, they needed somebody to post on the end of a big piece of crp that had a food plot on the edge of it and no everybody has a dog so like nobody wanted to do it obviously but i was the guy i was kind of bringing everybody along on the trip so i said listen i'll just i'll go sit on the end and just hold them in and i'm I'm not even going to fire i'm just going to sit there with the dog and try to keep them in until you guys get down there and i sat there uh against a power pole and watched prob i don't know plenty of roosters but probably 75 hens going like five feet off or five yards off the, off the deck coming right past my head for like 20 minutes straight. I mean, it was, it was insane. And I think that just goes to show like a couple years ago, that wasn't the case in Iowa. Like you go back to 20, well, maybe more than a couple years, but like 2012, 13, 14, after those last big uh, snow events we had. And it was, it was hard hunting, but I'll tell you what, the birds have really responded in that state, which is awesome. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. starting to see them in spots that you normally wouldn't. And did you hear about the uh, derecho that went through Iowa? Yeah, the yeah. 80 mile an hour wind. My parents were driving up to my house during that from Arizona. <laughs> Actually, um, do you think that affected the bird population at all? 
Because so uh, the reason I asked that is because we had a uh, we have a private spot that nobody actually bird hunts, um, and I get to go with my buddies and hunt it, and we get maybe one bird off there, but it was hit hard by derecho, like trees are down, and I mean all sorts of stuff. The crops were were uh, were damaged and all and all that, and we just we barely see any. It's like perfect. I mean, there's like a little creek that runs down through it. There's corn on all yeah. the sides. Um, and then you get down to like the very middle of it and it's almost like a little, a little pond, if you will. And I mean, it's got habitat, it's got grass, it's got cattails. I mean, this is everything. We, we got one bird this year off it and years past we got none. Really? Huh. Yeah. That's, yeah. I don't know about the derecho and what kind of effects that had. I mean, I know it, it left, uh, it left a lot of ground in a bad spot for farmers, which was horrible. Um, you know, from a wildlife perspective, I think there was a lot of weedy fields and stuff this year that actually probably contributed to pheasant production or wildlife production in general, because uh, a lot of them were like, you know, prevent plant and other stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I don't I don't know. The eastern side of the state should have benefited because it blew 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 all the pheasants over to that side. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. <no. laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. If they got lifted up in there, man, they were. <laughs> They were yeah, gone. Kansas yep. anymore. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, honestly, I didn't hear of any real fallout from bird wise from, from that, to be totally honest. Yeah. I didn't know. I just, I, you know, I've never heard of that before, but the, he, the, the guy that I go with and has permission to hunt, um, he was telling me that it used to be loaded. And he said, ever since it seems like derecho came through, he's like, there's nothing there. And I mean, we've never gotten a bird. Like I said, we just got one rooster this year, but other than that, we haven't gotten a bird in the last like three years huh. there. Or since the ratio, I guess was that was three years. Twenty twenty, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. that's yeah. that's interesting. I don't know. I don't have a yeah, good answer for you there. <laughs> Maybe there's just a lot of coyotes and fox and everything in there, and we just I don't know. Could have, have been no idea. coons, yeah, coons, hawks. I don't know. I don't no idea. But it's it's like one of those places to be like, oh god, we're gonna limit out in twenty minutes. That's what you think when you pull up. Did you guys don't see. did you guys see the coyote post we did the other day? The article that yeah. you did, I did see that. Did is that one? Is it a new one or is that one you guys have? No, that's before? one. We we actually used it in the magazine a couple of years ago. Um, and I always like we like to repost it every once in a while just to just to get people people talking a little bit. I think it's honestly, I th- I think it's good for people to talk about effects of predators and those types of things. But from that, from that, uh, we're actually coming out with a pod podcast here with some experts from state agencies, uh, you know, fur bear, oh, fur, nice. bear, fur bear experts and people that did their, you know, sort of PhDs on those types of issues. So I think it's going to be a really, really interesting podcast as long as we're on the top. Oh, nice. Yeah. I think it's yeah. Yeah, pretty cool. Is, which, uh, which podcast is that be on? Uh, that's going to be on, on, on the wing podcast with Bob St. Pierre. And Bob. for listeners that nice. might not know what it was, I guess the premise of it was uh, we had a writer that interviewed a couple different biologists. I think he interviewed a, uh, one of the Iowa pheasant biologists as well, uh, along with some other states and basically talked about how when there's more um, when there's more coyotes on the landscape, they're actually helping to take some of the fur bears out. So like uh, the raccoons and the possums mm-hmm. and other things that actually uh, do a number on pheasant, on pheasant nests and upland, upland bird nests. So it's an interesting, yeah. Yeah, interesting makes... debate. I don't, I didn't see, I don't think I saw that post. You have to go, have to go, to back, go and back and look. And look. Yeah. Go we're going to have a podcast out on that though. I think it'll be pretty, pretty interesting. There's people on both sides of the <laughs> argument, obviously, but when you think about it, it's like, well, 
Makes sense. They did a lot of work in North Dakota and, and waterfall nests and stuff, and they would uh, actually put collars on coyotes. We actually interviewed Dr. Bill Clark from Iowa State University, who used to run their natural resources department. And he talked about how when they had more coyotes in the area, it would move out the fox and raccoons and other things that were a lot more of a detriment to, to nesting hen pheasants, which I thought was pretty cool research. So. Yes. Like the way I look at it is you think about it for a coyote to catch a pheasant is a lot harder than for a coon or a possum to eat a whole nest of eggs. Yeah. I mean, even, even dogs, you even know, dogs like, don't catch that many pheasants and we, we, we train, we train them to find them, you know? So yeah, yeah they're, yeah, they're crazy. more of a flush. They're more of a flusher. Like they'll work in, work in singles or pairs and like to flush rabbits and go after mice and things like that. So yeah, it'll be a pretty cool. Um, I think it'll be a pretty cool podcast topic to be totally honest. Yeah. That'll be a really good one. How was, uh, how was your season up in, Minnesota since you had such a great season in Iowa. Yeah. Yeah. Iowa was fantastic. Um, Minnesota, (laughs) honestly, across the board, I think just about everywhere in sort of the upper Midwest, upper Great Plains, uh, however you wanted to define it was, was, was great. Um, we had the last three winters, um, have been pretty mild to a degree. Springs have been pretty good. And I would say pheasant populations in, in, in our region that we're talking about here have boomed to some degree. Um, I'm, you know, in places I've talked to plenty of people like, yeah, we're flushing 30, 40 birds at a time on public lands when they're fighting them, especially later in the season. Um, early season was good. And even like South Dakota's late season that just got over here, um, this past, past weekend, past week, whatever. Um, plenty of guys out there that I normally go hunting with are sending me, sending me text messages of birds that they're getting. They're, they're stacked up in a lot of shelter belts and anywhere there's thick, thick yeah. woody cover or any cattails that are open. But even all those birds too, like they have a lot of fat on them. Like they're weathering the storm to some degree, you know? Um, so yep. I, I think yeah. upland hunting in general this year was good, but um, you know, I, I'm not going to get too worried yet because we got some 30 degree temperatures here and things, things are looking better for the birds to get out and bulk back up again. Um, from probably losing some body fat during these really cold temperatures, but um, cautiously optimistic, optimistic, I guess. But at the end of the day, this this could be a rebuilding year for some of our best pheasant populations: Iowa, Minnesota, the Dakotas, Montana, parts of Nebraska. So it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, knock on wood, we have winters like we have the past two, three years, and easy springs oh, yeah. where it's been, you know get the rains when you need them, but you don't get the rains when they're in the, the nesting phase to drown the nest and you know, all that yeah. good stuff, which is, I don't seems to be, I don't know about Iowa, but like Minnesota this year, we had a really, really wet spring early on. And then basically somebody just turned the faucet off and the end of May all the way through June, it was picture perfect nesting weather. And honestly, that's, yep. that's what contributed a lot of people thought we were screwed at first for for the hatch, and then um, what do you know? You have you have perfect hatching conditions when they need it the most. Chicks can't regu- regulate yep. their body temperature for that that first two weeks, and if it doesn't rain, no problem. Hen can keep them warm, you know. So yeah, a lot easier to keep something warm when they're dry than something warm when yep. they're wet. Yep, yeah, that was kind of that that spring can play a huge factor um, for helping populations recover if we get good ones. So yeah, we'll see what happens with winter. 
Yeah. Do you guys have any uh, big banquets outside of the f- uh, fest coming up that, you know, chapters and whatnot that you do with them? Yeah. Yeah. We've got, uh, we've got huge banquets coming up in places. One I would point to uh, kind of in your neck of the woods is, well, it's sold out at this point, but that Northern Polk Pheasants Forever Banquet. Um, I just can't say enough good things about that chapter. And uh, honestly, uh, um, I'm probably jaded a little bit in the fact that <laughs> I used to live and work there and I'm friends with all those guys. But this is uh, Northern Polk Pheasants Forever is located in Ankeny, Iowa. Um, and like many chapters out there, um, you look at the demographics of that chapter. They skewed a lot younger now. Um, there's a bunch of young guys in there that are passionate about bird hunting. That's what honestly we like to like to see because we've got a lot of baby boomers that are you know starting to age out a little bit and moving away from the chapters. So um, a chapter like that's done a great job getting uh, new blood infused. Um, you know, kind of back in the time when when I was down there and after I left, you've got a group of guys that have taken over that they went from 125 to 150 person banquet uh, for their first for their first 20 years to a about 500 person banquet for, for the next 20 here. Um, it's, it's pretty incredible what they can do, uh, what they've done with land acquisition, uh, learn to hunt, uh, adult mentor hunts, which I don't know if you guys have been a part of those, but everything that they're doing as a chapter is pretty cool. And, and I would just say it's a, it's a chapter that represents the organization really well. Yeah. What are a couple, I mean, you, you said, you know, have the, youth hunts and whatnot what are some things that you've seen from other chapters that have helped them succeed and bring numbers up maybe not just the northern polk one but just a couple of things that you feel more chapters could do to help out um honestly i think it's that that's why we give chapters that local model right volunteers can make make the chapter as big and as great as they want. We've got chapters in places where there aren't pheasants or quail within 500 miles and they have just absolutely huge events. So um, a couple of things I would point to is, um, you know, for a chapter like mine, that's located in the twin cities here, pretty, pretty Metro located. We still contribute to a lot of land acquisitions, which is great. We have a lot of chapters that want to see more public land and they partner with us on that hands-on habitat days. Um, chapter has been doing that since 1982, but we actually have like, I would say actual days called hands-on habitat days. Now that we promote and get people out in the field. We did a, a big one uh, last year here in my neck of the woods and removed a bunch of uh, volunteer trees on, on public grasslands along with some invasive species and garbage, which is awesome. Um, learn to hunt events for adults and youth, learn to shoot events for adults and youth women on the wing events um, that continues women continue to be one of the fastest growing demographics um, in the country yeah. right now, just not just in Upland, but in hunting in general. So we have a lot of uh, women on the wing chapters and, and focused events. Last year we did 95 uh, women on the wing focused events that impacted over 1600 participants, um, which is nice. way above, Dang. way above what we were the previous year. And we're going to knock that out of the park this year, which is, which is going to be great. Um, chapter projects in general. Um, so contracting work on, on WMAs, WPAs, county owned properties. Um, I encourage a lot of different chapters, you know, if you're looking for a habitat project, a best place to start is with your public lands manager. Like, Hey, what is this? What is this property outside of our city? What does it need done on it to produce, produce more wildlife or more upland wildlife? 
Um, and that's everything from tree removals to grass seedings to whatever it might be. Um, down in the Southwest, we, we do a lot of water guzzler projects still for those chapters that live in more arid regions, um, which are yeah. which are cool. Those are multi-day projects where they fix water guzzlers and fill them back up. Um, we got a food plot seed program. Um, at the end of the day, like nesting habitat's the most important thing we can do. But in, in a yep. winter like this, um, you know, instead of calling in be like, Hey, do you guys provide corn that I can, you know, throw on the side of the road for a pheasants? That's where a three acre food plot can really come in handy during a nasty, nasty winter. Yeah. So they don't have to go far from cover. So, and then, um, advocacy work, we've got chapter volunteers that are big into advocacy, um, you know, in Iowa, you guys are probably familiar with Iowa's water and land legacy. Um, we got the, got the base, we got it passed. We're trying to figure out the funding mechanism still. And a lot of that has to do with legislation and things, but, um, anything from the farm bill, um, to some of these big grassland conservation acts that we're working on, uh, advocacy is huge. And we fly, we fly out chapter members all the time that represent their communities to, to talk with legislators. So those are just a couple of the different things I think that, that chap chapters wow. do and can do very well. It's a solid yeah, list. it's, it's all good. But at the end of the day, habitat rules all we need more nesting habitat. It's the number one limiting factor, uh, in this country for upland bird populations. And, um, we do, I can't talk about it yet, but I think we've got a pretty awesome um, sort of community-based program that we're going to be focusing on uh, coming out here in 2023 uh, for signing signing nice. up more private acres for public land hunting. Um, yeah, can't wait to see and that. Come I out think then. if that goes well, um, you're going to see some some major major things happening in communities that uh, you know appreciate hunters and and uh, outdoorsmen and women come into their communities. So um, more to come on that, yeah. but that's going to be a cool, cool process. Yeah. That's awesome. That is awesome. No, that'd be, that'll be great coming in 2023 and um, looks like some good things in the works and whatnot, but um, we're kind of, we're right at an hour right now. So we usually try to keep it right there. And uh, I know All you good. mentioned a code that you wanted to shoot out. So you, if you wanted to, to drop that you could yeah but, um uh, encourage everybody to come out to national pheasant fest and quail classic if you've never been there before it's a community gathering of like-minded folks that love to upland hunt love bird dogs love public lands and honestly that's what the show is all about um it runs february 17th through the 19th at the minneapolis convention center and if you want tickets to learn more about all the things that are going on there you can go to pheasantfest.org you can go to the ticketing page and uh work your way through the tickets and eventually it's going to ask you for if you have a discount code and you can use fest f-e-s-t fest 23 in capital letters and uh that'll get you a couple free tickets to come to the show and um look us look us look me up look us up when you get there it's going to be a a fun event and we're going to be doing all sorts of podcasts and and uh all sorts of things at the show itself so encourage people to come on out yeah get on out there guys support it Fun. We were there last year. Excited yep. to go back this year. Sweet. So, Look forward to seeing yeah. you guys. Well, Jared, <clears throat> thank you. Thank you for Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever. Yes, thank uh, you For so doing much. everything that you guys do for the Upland community and trying to yeah, give us more places to hunt uh, and to keep the legacy going for future hunters, too. So, again, we appreciate you coming on the podcast, taking the time to talk about what you guys all do. 
Uh, and we look forward to seeing you and seeing everybody else that's listening um, at Pheasant Fest this Sounds year. Sounds good. Have a good rest of the winter. And let's hope for a good spring. Uh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Thanks, All right, thanks, guys. Talk to you later.